Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Alright, this morning we're looking again at Ephesians and I'm going to Ephesians chapter 6 and reading about the armor of God and uh, I'll tell you the point in case I lose you at some point. (laughs) My title is The End is the Means. And only peace brings together the means and the end. And I'll explain it. Well, let's read 6, 13 to 17. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So in Paul's description of the armor of God, the key difference is the armor... All of the armor is that the good, you know, the good end of truth, the righteousness, the faith, all of these things, peace, the end is the means, and the means is the end. There's a kind of contrast this week in Washington between John Lewis and Attorney General William Barr. They were just a few steps apart in the Capitol. William Barr was defending the aggressive treatment of protesters, many of whom would have looked very similar to what John Lewis was doing on the Edmund Pettus Bridge and throughout his life. He was up before the Judiciary Committee defending himself. The Judiciary Committee was suggesting that what he was doing was unconstitutional in suppressing, violently suppressing the protesters the accusation they were fomenting their own violence, that is the federal government. And of course in the testimony it's not clear that in the world of William Barr there is room for the sort of peaceful protest that we find in the life of John Lewis. In fact he seemed to equate any kind of protest with violence. And of course, John Lewis spent his life leveraging protests, peaceful protests, nonviolent protests, to expose injustice. And Barr claimed that the force that was used against the peaceful protesters, specifically pepper spray, clubbing the protesters, he said, well, it was warranted, even though he acknowledged they were peaceful. I think what we're encountering, the methods of the civil rights icon, John Lewis, the methods of the president, the attorney general. I think they're two different worlds, in fact. And the way the New Testament characterizes these two worlds, or the two methods of these worlds, in one world we must do evil, that good may come true. We establish peace through violence. In the other world, the end and the means go together. They're tied together. 
And this is precisely what John Lewis taught, that the means of violence and the means of peace will bring about their own end. They will result in, you know, the means results in the end. The means of violence is the message of violence. And the means of peace is the message of peace. Quoting John Lewis, he says, There is one immutable principle that you cannot deviate from. If you want to have a good end, your means must be good and noble. Somehow, some way, the end must be caught up in the means. And of course, I think that's a gospel principle that he's preaching there, that he's teaching. And what caused Lewis to get beaten, nearly beaten to death, what caused him to get arrested some 45 times, I think it's the same stuff that put Paul in prison in Ephesus. That's where he's writing this letter from. Two worlds are coming into conflict. The city of God and the city of man. And the way of man and the way of the gospel. They're over and against each other. And Paul is telling about an alternative city. I think we lose this a little bit in our reading of Ephesians because the political nature of what he's describing it may not still ring in our ears in the way that it did in the first century we know now that the imperial cult was rapidly growing in the same period that Christianity was growing so from about 30 AD to 60 AD archaeologists have found in Asia Minor some 52 shrines to the imperial cult that were established, they were built in 30 to 60 AD. It's very interesting. And so for Paul to declare, he's using the language that the Caesar cult would have used. Caesar is Lord, Paul saying Jesus is Lord. And he's using throughout the letter language of citizenship. You're now joint citizens in the kingdom of God. He's describing a different loyalty and of course in the passage we just read even a different armor and a different kind of army and it's clearly going to cause trouble Paul's in prison after all and so Ephesians is a kind of maybe we could say Paul's most complete political theology aimed at creating a means you know what he's saying here stand firm well how do you stand firm against this Roman ideology this Roman religion this Roman economy and of course, as I ask that, this is the question we face, right? How do we stand firm in the face of the ideology that we're up against? And so when he says this, he has in mind real counterforces. The word that we have for church, ecclesia, it just means the public meeting of the citizens. That is that we're the citizens of a different kingdom. But there's also the ecclesia of Rome. It will require a different polis, and that's what Paul is describing. The word gospel, do you know where that word comes from? It's actually a word from the imperial cult. That when there was a new emperor, the gospel would be sent out, the good news, that a new Lord has been proclaimed. So when Paul is talking about the gospel, it is a counter gospel to the imperial gospel. Paul is drawing then upon political 
conception, the, the peacemaking, that's really key here, the temple building, describing the church as a temple. Well, that's over and against the cults of Caesar and, of course, the other temple cults. He talks about a unified head, body, imagery. That's language right out of a Roman political understanding. And here in the passage we just read, he's talking about a military triumph. But of course, he means this in a very different way. He's, and so socially, politically, religiously, Christians were surrounded by this imperial cult or emperor worship and the temples created. They were often the most imposing structures. You know, you can see the descriptions that when you would come in to certain cities, that the imperial cult temple was the most impressive temple of the area. And so Paul is describing this alternative polis, this alternative worship, this alternative temple. You know, in 220 he talks about being built into a temple through Jesus, the cornerstone, in whom the whole building is fitted together into a holy temple in the Lord. In 2.19, Paul uses the language of citizenships. He says that Jews and Gentiles are now part of a singular polity. At 2.12, he describes how Gentiles had been excluded from the polity of Israel, but now they're included. You are no longer strangers and aliens to the polity of the kingdom of God, he says. You are fellow citizens in 2.19. With the saints, you are part of God's household. And now remember in all this, it is non-citizens in Rome that will be subjected to the worst treatment. And what Paul says, oh yes, but you are all citizens of the household of God. And so the difference of this cosmic temple with a universal citizenship, I think the key difference is that it is built not on violence, but on peace. That's what Paul says in 2.14. He himself is our peace. He's describing a polity, a politic, an economy, a religion that is built on peace as over and against the systems of violence. And so when we think of violence, and you know, maybe we think of the, the Roman gladiators. That was one instance of fighting, you know, that was an entertainment to see people kill each other. But Roman courts meted out capital punishment with ease. Poor people, slaves, non-Roman citizens, they were declared, and the word is noxi. And of course, that's the word we get, our word noxious. They were noxious and could be condemned to death like we might condemn any kind of noxious insect. Their suffering was supposed to be an example. It wasn't humane. If you were a citizen, you had the, the honor of being beheaded. But if you were condemned as a non-citizen, they suffered torture, they were beaten, they were flogged, and of course crucifixion. That's really where we get it. That's the extreme treatment of slaves. There are examples we have of people even, you know, they had theater. And occasionally in the drama there would be a murder. 
Well, they would just pull in a, a somebody who was of the Noxi class, the noxious ones, and they'd literally kill them on the stage for dramatic purposes. And so the ancient city of Rome, it was violent. It was a, a hotbed of class hatred, of racial animosity. There was religious intolerance. There was sexual exploitation. And one of the big things, if you were a Roman citizen, was dignity. The citizens wanted to be dignified. But it usually was only the wealthy, the educated elite, who could be dignified. And the plebeians, the sordid, the vulgar plebes, they were the lower classes. They didn't even qualify for dignity. And so what I'm describing is a world in which human beings are thought to be incapable of peaceful coexistence. Order must be violently imposed. Men over women, masters over slaves, priests over laity, aristocrats over peasants, rulers over people. In one world, it is necessary to dominate. To do anything less is considered weakness. The powers of state, of religion, of logic call for dominance, and they call for unquestioning acquiescence to cause trouble. You know, I'm thinking John Lewis is here his whole life. He said, I've been causing trouble, but he says it's good trouble. But in this world, to cause trouble is by definition bad trouble. As the highest virtue, the, the supreme religious value, is obedience to the powers. In this world, there is no such thing as Lewis's good trouble. We are trained, and I think not just in the first century, but we are trained today not to resist, not to challenge. As the dominating system, very often in evangelical circles, is thought to be God's system. We are not to exercise dominion and think here, oh, that's right over and against the first command in the Bible that we are given the dominion mandate. We're called to serve in this understanding, to die, to sacrifice our sons and daughters in service of the dominating system. And so where violence is the norm, and I'm quoting here Walter Wink, the tasks of humanity are to till the soil, to produce foods for sacrifice to the gods, to build the sacred city Babylon, and to fight and if necessary die in the king's wars. There is this understanding that the earthly kings, the earthly presidents are God's chosen representative. And maybe this is where you get the kind of characterization of William Barr, who thinks there is no other legitimate or legal force. Peaceful protest against the powers is a kind of oxymoron in this world. The singular world of legal violence has a very old history. And we could call this then the myth of redemptive violence. It constitutes the oldest form of religion. It is the organizing principle of human societies. According to Rene Girard, the French anthropologist, sociologist, he says that all human societies are organized 
around forms of violence. And even the myths, you know, we have Babylon and we have Genesis and the creation, but that is over and against what we think is a contemporary creation myth. It's the story of Marduk, you know, Marduk murders and dismembers Tiamat, they're both gods, and creates out of the cadaver of Tiamat the canopy of the heaven, and order arises then from a primordial disorder and chaos. As I'm saying all of this, think of the words in Genesis, what precedes the chaos? There is the picture of, the, of a chaos, but God precedes it, and the good creation of God precedes the evil. But in this understanding, evil precedes the good, and the gods themselves are violent, killing each other. This is the structure of myths all over the world. Syria, Phoenicia, Egypt, Greece, Rome, even in Japan. Faith and I lived at the base of a mountain in Japan called Mount Scuba. Mount Scuba is where Izanagi and Izanami descended on Mount Scuba. And the female dies, the male locks her in the cavern there and her body rots, and it's the, the same story, you're going to find the same story, that creation is out of death and violence. That is that there's an originary violence, an originary chaos, and the world comes from this violence, as if the violence and the evil is the good creative force. I think that's what the biblical picture of creation is over and against. In the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And of course, the pronouncement of the creation is that it is good. This good creation, I believe, is over and against the violent creation myths that we're surrounded by in the world. And so, as Wink notes, cosmic order requires the violent suppression of the feminine. You know, it's Izanami that is locked away in, in the place of the dead. And it's mirrored in the social order, that the subjection of women to men and people to ruler. Rene Girard says that myth is the very structure, this violent myth is the very structure of human religion, framed around the notion of some sort of redemptive violence. That is, the God dies the world or the country or this particular people is created and his point is this is probably reflective of a historical event in which somebody really got murdered that is that peoples and tribes and nations are founded upon murder upon violence this is certainly the story of Romulus and Remus it's the story of Cain and Abel, except that with Cain and Abel, we can go back and read and see the violence. Cain kills Abel and founds a city. And so the murder mythologized. It channels violence. It organizes society around a kind of violent sacrifice and oppression. And the murdered scapegoat becomes a kind of mythological deity making all things possible. And so this tendency, I believe, toward murderous myth, I think it indicates the deep psychological ties to the necessity of violence that we all have. 
it constitutes religion because it is already the substance in which we seem to live and move and have our being. It's a personal necessity. Now this is the way Paul describes it in the book of Romans, that he's hostile, not simply toward other people, but this hostility resides in himself, that he's torn within himself. I think we're riven personally and socially and culturally by this violence. And the point of the Bible is to subvert, to undo, to overcome this violence. And so the way of the world, this necessary logic, that you gain peace through violence, you gain peace through war. It orders politics, nations, individuals. It's the presumption, though, that we can obtain the end through an alternative means. We can gain the good through the evil. Paul is going to repeat this formula several times and say this is the perversity of sin. Shall we sin that grace may abound? Shall we do evil that we gain the good? Is the law sin? He repeats it again and again. And of course the answer is always God forbid that as Christians we would get caught up in this logic. This is the logic of the world, but it's not the logic of Christ. Christianity, rightly realized, is a counter to this world, constituted by violence and the logic of doing evil in order to gain the good. First of all, we need to identify what's the problem. Well, violence is the force which would rule and destroy us. It is the living death that Jesus described. And biblical redemption can be read as the counter to this all-pervasive dominating force. Begin with an alternative creation, not by means of chaos, but by the good ordering the chaos. I believe Genesis is anti-myth. It can be read as a direct rebuttal, not only of the myth of Babylon, but the myths of the world. Rather than a primordial chaos and violence, the Bible portrays a good God who creates from original peace. After all, He is peace. He is goodness. God pronounces creation good. And this goodness reigns prior to the introduction of human beings. And God pronounces it good prior to the existence of evil, murder, and violence. You understand in all the myths, evil, murder, and violence come prior to the good. So it's a different ordering. Violence is not the means to something else in Genesis. But it is a product of sin. It is a product of the fall. And it is posed in the Bible as the primary problem, right? This is the problem. Cain kills Abel. Lamech arises. Lamech, you know, we don't talk about very much. He's a killer. He's killed two young men. And then the generation of Noah. What's the problem? They're killers. They're sociopaths. And so the culmination of the gospel, like the powers, I believe, that divide this country, pits the religion, the law, the powers of the world against the faith, the religion of Jesus. 
The war that is still being waged, you know, between those who put Jesus on the cross. You know, who, who killed Jesus? Was it rabble-rousers? Was it protesters? No, it was the authorities. It was Herod. It was Pilate. It was the religious authorities. And of course, the argument of the high priest is, our nation requires the death of Jesus that the nation would be saved. And so there's two kinds of people, those willing to crucify Jesus and those willing to take up the cross. And if taking up the cross is a counter to the religion and powers of the day. That's always true. There's no mystery as to whose side God is on, right? The man who's on the cross and the people who put him there, there's no mystery as to which side God is on. Jesus' accusers, I think, were the equivalent of the president, of the attorney general of their day. So it was not rabble-rousers, it was not protesters, it was the religious and political powers who killed Jesus. And what we can do now, we can perceive because of Christ that the violence done to Jesus is following the age-old dominion of redemptive violence. It has always been an attack on God. Those who killed Jesus would kill God. They would displace him with the God of violence. That's really our choice. Is God the good creator? Is God the giver of peace? Is God the giver of all things that are valuable? Or does that come through alternative means? Through the means of violence? The peace of the gospel is the counteraction of God. In which the war on God, that's really what it is is exposed, it's being defeated through the cross, through the resurrection. And so the method of Trump, of Barr, is the message we would expect of the world and the message of history. If the enemy bombs civilians, think here World War II, then we will drop bigger and better bombs. If the enemy resorts to cruel torture, we will duplicate and exceed this cruel torture. The federal agents escalating the violence on the streets of our cities are following the logic of their masters. It is the logic that sets state troopers to clubbing John Lewis on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. It is the logic that would drop atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's the logic of mutually assured destruction. Even by those, you know, they're destroying civilian populations. The civilized world, put that in quotes, had agreed just a few short years before that in just war we never kill civilians. And so the one thing that world history should teach, but the lesson that it cannot get across, I believe is the message of John Lewis. War does not end war. Violence does not stop violence. What is most obvious is that violence begets violence. And the way in which we've arrived at mutually assured destruction, you know, that's the balance of nuclear weapons, the way which would club down the John Lewis's of the world, it's the way of a redemptive violence, the way of world destruction. And the truth, 
I believe that we have a kind of profit in Lewis in exposing the contradiction toward which world history is moving. I think our present administration in its escalation of violence is just following the way of the world. It is this logic in which we're grounded personally and corporately. Maybe just by dint, we're all sort of enculturated into it. It is the dominant force in the world. It is the religious force. It's the personal force. And of course, somebody like Martin Luther King Jr., John Lewis, somebody comes along who would implement peace through peace, implement the way of Jesus as a means toward what Lewis called a beloved community. Violence and evil are not the way to peace, they're the opposite. And so the myth of redemptive violence for many, it's the voice of God. They can't separate out God and war. They can't separate out the need of God's righteousness and the need of national righteousness carried out in violence. And so can't recognize a prophet who would pronounce peace as its own means and end. The deep grammar of deploying evil and violence to gain peace, it makes the message of Jesus, the message of peace, incomprehensible. It's totally impractical in one world. And so I believe it's the reality which Lewis's principle puts into display. Paul describes in these verses that we read the enactment of peace, truth, righteousness. They are their own weapons. They are their own means. They are their own end. The armor of God does not consist of secondary means or material. Truth, righteousness, peace are their own armor. The movement called salvation, that's the salvation armor that he's describing, is the deployment of weapons of nonviolence, which he says constitute the word of God. These are not simply defensive weapons, by the way. You know, think of the imagery that he's describing here. It's actually the imagery of two armies coming together. And what do you do? Well, people pull out their swords. They begin to fight. But he's describing, he says, we're not fighting a war of flesh and blood, but we're fighting a war against the principalities and powers. And so these are not simply defensive weapons, but they're offensive. It's an offense against the lie, the unrighteousness, the way of violence, which Paul describes elsewhere in Romans 3, in this understanding all have given themselves over to the lie of violence. Paul says the organs of speech deal in death. Their throats are graves, their tongues deceive, their lips spew poison. Who's he describing? He's describing the history of the human race. And this culminates, he says, in the shedding of blood he doesn't use the word, but actually he, has, he, he calls it the way of destruction. I think we could just call it, it culminates in mutually assured destruction. He sums up this deadly logic as the perversity of doing evil that good may abound. That's the logic of the world. Establishing the law through sin. Committing transgressions to gain grace. On each occasion that Paul 
develops this formula, it's there that he uses the strongest language. He says, God forbid that as Christians we would get caught up in this. Where the undergirding logic, the picture in both Romans 3, the feet that are quick to shed blood, and then the picture that we just read of the armor, the feet shod with the gospel of peace. The feet or the moving force of this one way is bloodshed. Paul describes the gospel of peace as the counterforce. Only peace can counter the contagion and logic that has gripped the world, and only peace brings together the means and the end. How do we do peace? Not by other means, but by being peaceable. How do we do goodness? Not by other means, but by being good. How do we do righteousness? You get the point. We just implement it. We just do it. It's not by evil that good shall come, but the means to the good, peace, righteousness, truth, they foster the end through the means. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.